We are a Bible church, Bible-believing, Bible-teaching. And if you don't have a Bible, we can help you there, but I can't encourage you enough. You need a Bible. You need your own Bible. You know, uh, the Bible that you, you love dearly and that you are comfortable with and that uh, is very natural for you to flip through and so important. All right, well, Romans 15, we're going to be looking at the first seven verses of the chapter. And uh, thus far, the context in chapter 14, as you will recall, was a matter of personal convictions. There are certain things that the Scriptures are crystal clear about, and we must obey them. And we have to hold each other accountable to obey those things in the Lord. But then there are things that are gray areas, and they're not crystal clear, and we can differ on those things. Those are what we would call non-essentials. And we have to allow each other the the freedom to know what that is and to allow people to obey it for themselves because we all answer to the Lord. Remember that? And then the following week, we talked about the fact that um, we may have liberties that other people don't necessarily have in the Lord, but sometimes we need to set those aside for the sake of love. If somebody else is is deeply stumbled or uh, bothered by something that we have the freedom to enjoy, uh, we have to be willing to set that aside for the sake of love. And, and Paul's been talking mainly about meat, right? Meat, sacrifice to idols, pagan idolatry. People had come out of that lifestyle, and for them to eat meat was a sinful thing in their mind because for all we know, that meat could have been offered to idols, and so they had determined they would never eat meat again. And, and Paul said, there is no God but our God, and I know that there's nothing wrong with that meat, but I'm willing to set that aside and not eat that meat for the sake of uh, love for my brothers and sisters. And so we talked about that. So <clears throat> that brings us to, excuse me, chapter 15. And in chapter 15, Paul kind of concludes a little bit, and uh, we're still in the same context, and it's a little bit of a stamp here. Uh, Paul is, is adding to the end of chapter 14. And what he's essentially doing now is making sure that unity will still prevail. Because what happens when, when you determine you have a feeling about something and I have another feeling so often? We just go our own way, right? You go your way, I go my way, and we can all just be happy. But that's not disunity. And that was one of the main things that Paul seemed to, to deal with in so many churches. Always such a concern of Paul's was disunity in the church. And there's nothing that'll kill a church like that. And so we want to be united in Christ, looking out for one another, serving one another, supporting and encouraging one another. That was Paul's uh, admonishment to them, and that is his admonishment to us. So I've titled this message, Stick Together and Encourage One Another. It's not a you go your way and I'll go mine. No, we've got to work through differences and stay close, stick together. You know what happens to the banana that leaves the bunch? It gets peeled every time. Now, some of y'all, I know you've heard me say that a bunch of times. I'll continue to say it. I love that. That's just, it's true. The banana that leaves the bunch gets peeled. And so we've got to stick together, folks. Uh, We need each other. It's not a you go your way and I'll go mine. No, we need to love one another and bear one another up. So I've titled this message, as I said, Stick Together and Encourage One Another. So that brings us to the text before us, Romans 15, verses 1 and 2. And our first point is we don't just put up with each other, we support each other. We don't just tolerate one another, but we support each other. You got that? Now this is the what. 
Uh, what's so cool about this text is Paul is going to give us the what to do, he's going to give us the how to do it, and then he's going to give us the why that we do it in just these seven short verses. And so here's the what. We don't just put up with each other, we support each other. Verse 1, we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. So what we have here in these first few verses is uh, the strong, Paul res uh, refers to the strong Christians, and then the weak Christians, and he talks about the scruples of the weak, really weird word, that's not a word that's generally in my vocabulary, we'll talk about that, and that word to bear with one another. And so let's just break this down, who are the strong that Paul is referring to here. Well, this word, it's dunamis or dunatos, excuse me, in the Greek, and it's closely related to the word that we would get dynamite or explosive or dynamic. It means mighty, powerful, capable. And this would be a Christian who is solid, a Christian who is grounded, a Christian who is mature in the faith. They are stable. And so Paul says that the Christian who is strong, the Christian who is stable, the Christian who is solid, the Christian who is grounded in the faith has a responsibility, has a responsibility to those who are weak in the faith. And so Paul's going to make this, uh, this contrast between the weak and the strong. And, you know, we could have strong Christians in this room and weak Christians in this room, and we could have varying degrees from one end to the other. And so that's a, that's a reality for us. And let me just side note here. Age doesn't necessarily mean strength. You know that, right? There can be very young people who show tremendous maturity that are absolutely grounded in the Lord and, and put even older folks to shame sometimes. And we see that in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy had been sent to Ephesus to set things straight, and he was considered a young man. Now, he was in his 40s, most likely, and so I think to a lot of us, we won't necessarily see that as like some kind of whippersnapper or some snot-nosed punk, right? But uh, the people in that town did, the elders of that church certainly did, and this was Paul's admonishment to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 12, let no one despise your youth. But be an example to the believers in word and conduct and love and spirit and faith and purity. So Timothy was a stronger brother. He was a solid brother. And his age didn't have anything to do with it. And he was called by Paul to set an example, to set the standard there in Ephesus. And so those who are strong in the Lord have a responsibility. They have a responsibility before God to bear with the scruples of the weak. The scruples of the weak. Now, what is this word scruples? It, it actually means weakness, failings, doubt, or hesitation. And some translations just render it weakness or, or failings. So the, the strong, they are to bear with the weaknesses or the failings of the weak believers. These would be those who haven't matured fully or become biblically grounded, right? And so you have those who are solid, those who are strong in the faith, those who are grounded, and then you have those who are not. And Paul said that those who are are to bear with those who are not, those who are weak in the faith. 
Now, as I said, we're still in the context of chapter 14 where he's talking about meat and things like that and personal convictions and uh, how we're to you know, love each other and set those things aside for the sake of love. But I'm going to broaden this out just a little bit. Is that okay? I'm going to make it a little more applicable in different ways. And I don't think that I'm taking too much liber- liberty here in, in doing this. But the, the strong are to bear with the weaknesses of the weak, with the failings, with the doubt, with the hesitations of the weak. And there are a number of ways in which this can happen among us in the church. And so you can have a believer who has some very strong misconceptions about what the Scriptures actually say. They really don't understand certain key truths of the Scriptures, and it affects their walk. It affects their walk altogether. You know, I met a a Christian lady years ago who was of a particular denomination where she felt like we were supposed to observe the Saturday Sabbath. And so she told me that in Luke chapter 15, there's the parable of the ten coins, and the lady lost one of the coins and swept the house over till she found the coin, and then the, everyone came together and celebrated. Do you know that story? It's in the same context of the 99 sheep and the one and the, the prodigal son. Well, she said that her understanding was that the lady was the church and that the coins represented the ten commandments, and what was the coin that, or the commandment that the church had lost? It was the Sabbath. And so now the church has found the Sabbath again, and we should all rejoice. And I'm like, okay, I mean, that is a twisting of Scripture like I've never even heard before. That's some serious imagination. So that's a strong misconception of the Scriptures, and for that reason, she had a strong conviction that we were supposed to observe the Saturday Sabbath. Well, there can be ignorance of the Scriptures altogether. You may not even know what the Bible says about any particular thing, but you just have a strong feeling in a certain area, but you have no authority to back that up. And that happens a lot in the church. You know what you believe, but you don't know why you believe it. And if someone were to challenge you on it, you couldn't really give, a, give an answer to it. And I think that a lot of us can be in that boat. You know, there are so many things that we grow up in the Lord hearing and believing sounds good, We can tell it to somebody else, but if they were to challenge you on it, could you really give a defense for why you believe that? So it's good to go back and try to understand why you believe what you believe. So you have people in that area. You have people who struggle with legalism. You know, their relationship with the Lord is very contractual. That is, if I do everything right, if I keep all of these rules, then I will have God's love and God's favor, which is totally wrong. But then they try to put that same trip on other people. And they despise and look down on other people who don't keep those same rules that they deem so necessary to be a Christian. So you have folks who are bound up in legalism. Then you have the extreme other end, antinomianism. And that literally means against the law. It's a fancy way of saying, basically, I don't think there are any kind of rules or regulations or commands within Christianity. It is a total free-for-all. You know, God loves to forgive and I love to sin, so this is a great relationship. And so obviously, very strong uh, misconception there, traditionalism. Hey, this is just the way we've always done it. This is the way that it has always been. I don't know when we started doing it, but we're not going to stop now. People who are absolutely bound to tradition, baggage, gone through things in your past, hurts, You've experienced a variety of issues and fallouts, and so certain things are ingrained within you. Unbelief would describe um, a person who is weak, a weaker brother or sister in the faith, crippled by unbelief. Inconsistency, 
up one day, down the other, here one Sunday, and then we don't see him again for like three months, can't find him, can't, can't get in touch with him, just totally inconsistent. I have certainly been that guy uh, over the years of, of my walk. You know, and, and any other sin struggle that just cannot overcome, just really young in the Lord or, or still immature in the Lord. And, you know, we all have sin struggles, so don't, don't misunderstand what I say here. But there are just so many ways in which a person could be considered the weaker brother or sister. And Paul says that those who are mature, those who are solid in the faith, are to bear with those who are weak in the faith. And so what exactly is this to bear with? And this is important, guys. This is the what. As I said in, in the beginning, there's the what and the how and the why. Now, if we don't get the what right, how we do it and why we do it really doesn't matter, right? And so we have the strong Christians, the weak Christians, and the strong Christians are to bear with the weak Christians. Well, let me tell you what this does not mean. It does not mean that we're to tolerate. We don't just tolerate each other. And I think that for some of us, maybe all of us, uh, we can think of some people in our lives where maybe we kind of struggle with that, you know. To us, it's a, it's a matter of just putting up with or tolerating other brothers or sisters in the Lord. And, you know, sometimes I think we think that that's how God sees us. Have you ever felt that way? Do you ever struggle with that? God just tolerates you, tolerates me. It's like, I know that he loves me because he has to, but I'm pretty sure he doesn't like me. <laughs> now, could it be that we perceive God that way because we treat other people that way? Something that we have to really think carefully about. We're not to just bear or put up with or tolerate one another. The word here means to carry. It means to support. It means to strengthen. And we find this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, where it says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such one in a spirit of gentleness. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So if someone is overtaken, the word means caught, caught up in, entangled. If they're entangled in some kind of sin, what are we to do? Come down on them, ridicule them, judge them, be harsh towards them? Absolutely not. We're to restore them in a spirit of gentleness, and we are to bear that burden. We're to come alongside them, pray for them, encourage them, surround them with the love of Christ, and help walk them through whatever it is that they're going through. That is the responsibility of the body of Christ. We do this one for another. We bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. There it is again, guys. Have you noticed how often that comes up in the New Testament? The law of Christ, the royal law of love, that we love God with all that we have and we love each other as ourselves. And this is one very real and practical way that we do that, by supporting those around us who are struggling, who are weak, who need our love and support. You know, I've heard this saying before. I don't really care for it, but I understand. I don't know who came up with it, but I know where they're coming from. And maybe you have experienced this, but I've heard it said that the, the Christian church is the only army that shoots its wounded. You ever heard that before? Now, I've never experienced that personally, but I know many who have. 
They felt like when they were weak, when they were hurting, when they were struggling, when they were falling, they didn't receive support from their brothers and sisters. They got the opposite. They got basically, you know, turned away, pushed out. Their back, backs turned on them. And that, that's so very unfortunate. And so those, those people are out there to be sure. And that, that does grieve all of our hearts, I know. But I, I praise God that that's not really been my experience. Everywhere that I've been, I've been surrounded by brothers and sisters who love me and have my back. And I know that our church is like that. You know, I love you guys, and I love the way that we support one another here. And I know this is a church where people of all stripes feel welcome to come, and they are supported and encouraged the moment they come through the door. And so I just want to say, you know, good job to you guys. I just want to commend you for being that kind of a church. And I want us to grow and to abound in that. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak be patient with all and so we want to be those who uphold each other uphold the weak amen we need that i have needed to be um, upheld i have needed to be supported and encouraged and we need that we need that now this can this can be tricky too can be somewhat of a moving target it can be a case-by-case basis because there are some people who have certain convictions and strong feelings, and we should support them in it. We should say, hey, that's, that's okay that you, you feel that way, and I don't want to hinder you. I don't want to try to talk you out of that. Let me set aside my preferences and my convictions and, and help you. But then there are times where people need to be lifted out of that. As I said, if it's an issue of legalism or a misconception of the scriptures or a, a sin struggle, we're not to just say, hey, to each his own, you do your thing. Uh, no, there's a time when the loving thing would be to try to lift that brother or sister up out of that misunderstanding or that sin struggle or whatever it may be. So we need the wisdom of the Lord, do we not? We need wisdom from God's scripture to know how to handle each, each case, uh, you know, case by case. Well, Paul also says that we're not to please ourselves. So we are to bear with the weaknesses, the failings of the weaker brothers and sisters, and we are not to please ourselves. And I would say that this phrase, to please ourselves, is to, to basically disregard or disassociate from the weaker person for our own benefit. It's like, okay, you're, you're stuck in this. I, you know, I'm just, I'm tired of it. You know, you, you keep falling in this area. How many times is this going to happen? So just to leave them in that place and to disassociate, I'm just going to go do my own thing. I'm just going to go focus on me or whatever the case may be. That's what it is to please oneself. You know, it's all about me, my wants, my needs, my desires. And so, you know, good luck to you. I'm sorry about what you're going through. That's your misfortune. But I'm going to go focus on myself. That's the idea of pleasing oneself. And Paul says we're not to do that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 24 and 33 says, Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Verse 33, Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many. And so that was Paul's motto. That's what he lived by. That was his M.O., as it were. That we are not to please ourselves, but we are to please others. He says to let, let each please his neighbor for his own good, leading to what? 
Edification, leading to edification. It's to come alongside the weaker person and to invest in them, to pour into them. Not to disassociate, disregard, and do our own thing, but to come and to bandage up the wounded and to, to restore the broken and to, to love those who need it most. You know, I've had this in my own life. I have a, a dear brother years ago, Bob Mostyn in South Carolina, and I was serving in an, an addictions ministry at that time, and uh, he was the uh, director of church relations and education. And so I came alongside this brother, and he was really investing in me, but it was a very difficult time of life for me, and um, it seemed like the longer that uh, our relationship went on for my own personal life was unraveling and things were just falling apart in the worst ways and I struggled so much and I had some pretty pretty nasty spills there and he was always there for me and I remember one time I got to the point where I was almost thinking I didn't even know if I believed any of this anymore and I was questioning whether I even believed God and so I called him and you know he was working um, full-time he was just exhausted and he said all right I'm gonna come over to your house when I get off work and he came in he was just dirty and you could tell he was exhausted and he kicks off his shoes and sits on the couch and says okay let's do this and so he just starts walking me through it this is why Buddha is not the way this is why evolution is not the way this is why Allah is not the way and he just started going systematically through it and God used him in a very powerful way and he's like this is why the truth is the truth and Jesus is real and Jesus is the way and man God just really brought life to me through that brother in that moment and so the stronger brother encouraged the weaker brother and he didn't have to do that he was tired he'd been putting up with me for a long time I had been a very inconsistent young brother, and he didn't give up on me, you know, and, and so that, that's the way that it is supposed to look like. Mutual edification. I've been talking about that word. What does edify mean? It means to build up, exactly, to build up, and that's what we are to be doing. I heard uh, it was David Guzik, Guzik recently talked about this, uh, what we would call the 50-30 rule, the 50-30 principle. And that is 15 minutes before service and 30 minutes after the service, that is y'all's time to, to bless and encourage one another. And so you come to the church 15 minutes early and you, you speak into each other's lives, you pray for one another, you encourage and strengthen one another, and then 30 minutes after the service, you do the same. This is the time when I pour into you guys, when I, when I teach and speak into your lives through the Word of God, by the Spirit of God. And you certainly come here to be edified and to be uh, built up through the, the teaching and the preaching of the Word, but it's also your job too. We collectively do the work of the ministry together. And so I remember one time Pastor Bill talking about how we ought to prepare ourselves even for coming to church. Um, we should uh, be listening to worship music on the radio as we're coming to church. There are all these things that we can do to kind of prime the pump, as it were. We, we come here ready. We're in the Spirit. We're encouraged, and we're ready to encourage other people. I dare say we don't often do that, do we? I mean, I think sometimes, you know, there's a, this, I've heard it said of, of preachers, you don't ever call in late. You better crawl in late. Right, because we got to be here. Well, I think that's the way it is for a lot of churchgoers too. You're just crawling through the door, man. You're just—it took everything that you had to get in this place. 
and you needed encouragement, and you needed to be strengthened. And I praise God when, when you faithfully come in that time because that's when you need it the most. But at the same time, we should be striving towards coming in with an attitude, a disposition, a posture of, I am ready to bless and encourage other brothers and sisters today. And I've got 15 minutes before the service and 30 minutes after the service to do my part. Right? Because it's all about mutual edification. It's, that is the goal of the Christian community. So that's the what. We spent the most time there. We'll move a little more quickly through the how and the why. But the what is, is that we don't just tolerate each other. We certainly don't separate from each other. But we stick together and we support one another. Amen? We bear one another up. And so Paul's going to give us uh, point number two. Paul's going to give us three ways in which we grow in this. And this will be our how. So A is going to be we look to the example of Christ. B is going to be that we learn from the Scriptures. And C, we lean on God's power. A, B, and C. So three ways that we grow in supporting one another, bearing one another up. A, we look to the example of Christ. Verse 3. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So notice this phrase, for even Christ. Now this is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If even Christ Jesus, the Son of God, did not please himself, how much more should we be willing to do the same? If the Son of God who deserved to be served did not come to be served but came to serve others, how much more should we be willing to do the same? That's the idea. And he said that Jesus did not please himself. So Jesus came not to do his own will. He came to do the will of the one who sent him. How many times do we hear Jesus say that of himself in the Gospels? His food was what? His food food was to do the will of him who sent him, of his Father in heaven. So Jesus came. His prerogative was to do God's will. So he didn't please himself. He very much came with a mission, and that was to serve the Father. Jesus put aside his own rights in humble service to others. You know, when he washed the disciples' feet, he should have had his feet washed. That's the way that should have looked. The disciples were fighting over who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They should have been fighting over who was going to get to wash Jesus' feet, quite frankly. But Jesus took the place of the lowest servant in the house, and he washed his disciples' feet. I mean, that is a, a condescension like we can never understand. He came from the highest place to the lowest place in humility, and he set aside his kingly rights. He set that aside, he set that authority aside, and he served his disciples, even in something as lowly as that. And Jesus did not disregard and disassociate from the weaker, from the lowly. Quite the opposite. Jesus had a special place in his heart for the weaker and for the lowly. And that was where you would so often find Jesus. And that is where you would often find Jesus ridiculed for being. Because the religious elite of that day, they mocked Jesus. They said if he was really a prophet, he would know better. 
he wouldn't be, you know, with, with these kinds of people. I think of Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 39, where Jesus was at a Pharisee's house. The, the scripture tells us that the guy's name was Simon. And he was in Simon's home, a Pharisee, and this lady came in and she was standing behind Jesus weeping and she kneeled down and she began to wash his feet with her tears and her hair and to anoint his feet, uh, feet with very costly, fragrant oil, perfume. And while this is happening, the Pharisee is sitting there thinking, I can't believe this. This is outrageous. If he was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is and he would not allow her to do that. But see, she knew that she could come to Jesus. She knew, I'm certain, what she was going to experience from the Pharisee when she entered his house. But she also knew what she was going to experience from Jesus and that he would receive her, that he would accept her, and that he would, he would allow her to worship him like this and that he would embrace her in it because Jesus was like that. He was lowly in spirit and in heart. And those were the kinds of people that were drawn to him. Jesus did not come to please himself, but to please others. He set aside his divine prerogatives. He set aside his rights as king instead to take the servant's towel and to serve others. And he embraced the lowly. He did not disassociate and disregard from the lowly. He embraced them. And so that is what we are to do. You tracking with me? So first we look to the example of Jesus. And then Paul will say, as it is written... There in your note, uh, Bible in verse 3, as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now, Paul is quoting Psalm 69, 9 here in reference to Jesus Christ. I'll, I'll read that verse for you. Psalm 69, 9, it says, because zeal for your house has eaten me up and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. That's the verse. That's what Paul is quoting in reference to Jesus. Now, what was happening with the psalmist there is that he was so angry. He was so tore up over people's dishonor to God. And it was like, when people dishonor you, God, I take that personally. The reproach that comes against you, they might as well be reproaching me. They might as well be slandering and mocking and hating me. Because the person just felt that kind of zeal, that kind of passion for his God. That if someone attacked God... They took it that personally. So that's the idea of Psalm 69.9. Well, that verse is also quoted in John chapter 2, verse 17. You may be familiar with the story. Remember, Jesus cleansed the temple. There were salesmen there in the temple, and they were money changers, and they had a racket going on. People were coming to worship God, and people were, were making money off of the worship of the people. And when Jesus saw this, what was happening to his father's house, he was outraged. They had made his father's house a den of thieves. It was supposed to be a house of prayer. And so what did Jesus do? He made a, cord of, uh, uh, a whip of cords, and he, he turned over the, the money tables, and he chased everybody out. That was the wrath of God in that place. Christ Jesus displayed the righteous anger and wrath of God his Father in that moment to cleanse his house. And so Jesus felt that. God was being dishonored. His house was being dishonored. And Jesus rose up vehemently and did something about it. Well, Paul's point is this, that just as Jesus uh, didn't just disregard what was happening 
in his father's house. He felt the weight of it and did something about it. Jesus didn't just say, well, it is what it is. This is just the condition of the people in the day and age that we live in. He rose up and did something about it because God was being dishonored and Jesus felt the weight of that. So how does that translate to us? We are not to disregard the struggles and failures of our brothers and sisters as though it had no bearing on our lives. I'm not to look at the weaker brother or the weaker sister and say, well, it's not me and it's not my problem and I don't have to worry about it. I'm to feel the weight of their struggle. I'm to feel the weight of their weakness and I am to help bear that burden. You understand? And so that's, that's the point that Paul is making here as he goes from Psalm 69 and we see this with, the, with Jesus in the temple and we bring it back to Romans. That's the idea here. So just as Jesus felt the weight and did something about it, we do too. We don't just disregard and disassociate from our brothers and sisters. We, we, we stick together. We support and encourage one another. We don't separate and isolate. So that's the example of Jesus that we're to look to. We're to look to Jesus in this way. One who did not separate, but he, he loved others and supported others. B, we're to learn from the Scriptures. We're to learn from the Scriptures. Verse 4. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. So after referencing Psalm 69, Paul makes a broader point regarding the Scriptures. And that is where to look to the Scriptures. We need the Scriptures. We need to learn from the Scriptures. We need to be changed by the Scriptures if there's any hope of us being able to do this. 1 Corinthians 10.11 says the same thing. Now all these things happened to them as examples. That is what was written in the Old Testament and they were written for our admonition. So the Scriptures were delivered to us from God to help us understand God's heart and to do His will. This is one of the common means of grace. Fellowship, the Word of God, prayer. These are the gifts that God has given us to be able to do His will. And to be able to do this, to be able to support each other and bear one another up, we look to the example of Jesus and we learn from the Scriptures. God gave us His Word for this reason. We should look to the Scriptures for help in these areas. Because we, by nature, what do we do naturally? We seek to please ourselves, don't we? Paul just said, don't do that. Don't please yourself, please others. But by nature, we seek our own good, and so we need help. We need help to be able to change this. You know, Jeremiah 13, 23, I love this verse. He asked, can a leopard change his spots? Can a leopard change his spots? And then he says, well, it's an obvious answer. No, he can't. And he says, well, neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. And what he's saying is, is that you can no more reform your own heart than a leopard can change his spots. We can't do it, folks. We can't change who we are and how we are. And we are by nature people who seek our own. And we're being told that we're to follow the example of Christ and seek the good for others. And that we're to look to the Scriptures to be able to do this. We cannot go inside ourselves for what we need. And much of the world will tell you that. The truth is inside you you got to go inside. 
It's in your heart somewhere. And the Bible says your heart is so wicked and you are so blind. We all are. We have to go outside of ourselves for truth. It's found in God and in His Son, Jesus Christ. It's found in the Word of God. And so Paul is saying we have to learn from the Scriptures if we want to change in this area. If we want to be those who who don't please ourselves but please others and, and support other people. And it comes by a regular exposure and obedience to God's Word. You know, this is Bible 101, Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. Verse 11, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not, what? Sin against you. And so we have to be feeding on God's word, feasting on God's word in the morning, in the evening, corporately, Wednesday night Bible study, Sunday morning Bible study, men's study. You know, I'm so proud of the women that are coming out to the, the Tuesday night women's study. I think we're averaging about 30 women, maybe a few more with Zoom as well. And that to me is so impressive. And I'm delighted when I see that group gather and they take seriously getting in the Word of God and being washed by the Word because I think we all know we need to change. And that comes by immersing ourselves in God's Word. Regular exposure and obedience to the Word of God is the only way that we can change ourselves and not be self-centered but be others-centered. To be able to truly stick together and support each other. That is not in our nature. And so we need to look to Christ and we need to learn from the Word and we need to lean on God's power. See, we have to lean on God's power. Verse 5. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. So notice this phrase, may the God. And this is a prayer saying, may God grant you this. So Paul is praying for them. And that's the key, folks, as I said. Common means of grace. People want all kinds of crazy, new, extravagant ways to do these things. But with God, it's, it's simply relationship with Him, fellowship with each other, immersing ourselves in the Word of God and praying to God, praying with each other. And so that's what Paul says that we need to do. We need to lean on God's power. So he says, may God grant you to be like-minded. That was Paul's prayer for them, that they would be unified. Because Paul knew, Paul knew the, the propensity was to separate. We're dealing with two different kinds of people here, and I'm giving you these instructions, and odds are you're just going to separate. You're going to separate. We need you to be like-minded. We need you to be unified. We need the stronger brothers and sisters to encourage the weaker brothers and sisters. You, you understand that, don't you? A church, in order for a church to be truly healthy, truly thriving, the, the mature, the stronger brothers and sisters need to come alongside and support and encourage those who are newer in the faith. That's why disciples making disciples, that's, that's what we want to be about here. That's what we are working towards being. We are disciples of Jesus Christ that are actively working to make disciples, and then those disciples will make disciples. And I'm seeing that happen in our church, and it's an amazing thing to behold. And that is what, what is being encouraged here. So praying that God would grant them the ability to be unified, to be like-minded toward one another. And that's what it boils down to, folks. We need God's help in this, do we not? We need the example of Jesus. We need the lessons from the Scriptures. 
And we need God's power. And you know what? Good news, we have it. It's available to us, folks. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. We've been invited in. We're able to come boldly to the Father because of what Christ has done. We've been invited in and to know and to have this confidence that God's provision, God's help, God's power is available. God has said, here it is. You have all things pertaining to life and godliness available to you through the knowledge of my son, Jesus. And we've been invited into the throne room of grace for help. And so let us do that. Look to the example of Christ. Learn from the scriptures. Lean on the power of God. It's the only way that we can do this. It's the only way that we can stop from seeking our own and separating and isolating and actually coming together in a spirit of unity and supporting and encouraging one another in the Lord. All right, third point and last point. Now the motivation for supporting one another. This is the why. So we talked about the what. We're not to, to separate. We're not to isolate. We're not to just tolerate. We are to support and encourage one another talked about the the how how are we going to do this by looking to the example of Christ learning from the scriptures leaning on the power of God and now the why why for the glory of God that is our motivation in doing this to bring honor to the Lord honor to the Father and I don't know for how many Christians I don't know how many of us live with this in our mind we live with this as our as our reason for living day by day Verse 6, it says that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. That both sides in unity would collectively glorify God. That's what Paul wants to see here. The stronger and the weaker coming together in unity and like-mindedness with one voice, with one heart, glorifying God the Father. The Westminster Confession of Faith says that the chief end of man, our very reason for being, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. There's no greater goal than that. There's no greater purpose than to live for the glory of God and to enjoy God forever. And that's what God would have from his people, from his creation, that we would enjoy him and all of his goodness and all of his kindness, all of his benevolence, all of his graciousness, all of his mercies. They are abounding towards us. And God would have us to enjoy those and to give him glory, to give him honor, to give him praise, and to do so in our interactions one with another. God is honored when we support, when we encourage, when we strengthen one another. God is not glorified when we separate, when we divide, when we look down on, when we give up on each other. Living with God's glory in mind. You know, I've talked about this before. When it comes to God's glory, there's really three different aspects to it. There is the intrinsic glory of God. That is, He is what He is. Nothing can ever change that. God is glorious. He is absolutely glorious. And so, and God is jealous for his own glory. But then 
there is ascribed glory, and that is when we proclaim the glories of God. When, when, we, when we, from our hearts and with our mouths, verbalize the beauty of God's splendor and His favor towards His people and the salvation that has been wrought in His Son and His enduring patience and long-suffering towards His people. That is glorifying God. That is ascribing glory to God. But then there's reflected glory. And that's when somebody sees God in us. That's when someone sees the love of Christ, the patience of God, the generosity of God shining through us. And they know it's not us. They know that it is Him. And so as Christians, we are to be about God's glory. We are to praise Him for it, ascribe glory to Him, and we are to reflect His glory. We are to live to the glory of God in all that we do. And then he says, therefore, receive one another. We've, uh, we've talked about this word already. To receive somebody is to allow them into your heart. It's an intentional thing. You're going after that person and you are drawing them in. When Paul wrote to Philemon, he said, I'm sending Onesimus back to you. I want you to receive him. That is my own heart. He was not to receive him as a slave, but he was to receive him as a brother of Christ. And he was to open his heart to him. And that's the way that we are to receive one another. We are to open our hearts to each other. Just as Christ did for us, Christ received us. We have been received and accepted by God through him. And that's the gospel, folks. That's the glory of the gospel message. We have been received by Christ. There wasn't anything lovely about us. Jesus didn't say, man, I need that guy in my camp. Right? We would be the person who was lowly and outcast and struggling and just not getting it. Blind, deaf, and dumb. Tripping all over the place. Totally faithless. That would be us. But Christ received us. He brought us in. He made us accepted to the Father and loved by God. Christ received us. And so, do you know that? love of Christ. Have you been received by Jesus? Because all you have to do is call on His name. All you have to do is say, Jesus, I need you. I, I, I don't have you. I want you. I want to be accepted by you. I want to be received. I want to know the Father. I want to be forgiven of my sins. I want to be a part of this family of believers here. I want to know your goodness and your kindness in this life. I want to know your mercy, and I want to be with you in heaven one day. I don't want to have hell hanging over me. I don't want that to be my ultimate end. I want to be in glory with you, Father. That's available to you right now through the gospel. We have been received by Christ. We've been admonished to receive one another. Maybe there's someone in here watching at home who has yet to be received. You can be. All you have to do is call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. You will be His. Say, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I need you. Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, I turn from my old life and I turn towards you and I want to walk with you. I want to know you. You can do that. Call upon the name of Jesus and you will be saved. You will be received by Him. Well, the fact that we've been received by Jesus is a huge motivator that we should receive each other. Christ did so for us. How much more should we do so for each other, right? 
We should be the most receivingest people in the world. When we consider who we are and where we've come from and the things that we've done and that Christ received us then, that when we were in our ungodliness and wickedness, Christ died for us and called us to himself, how in the world could we ever not receive somebody else? And I'm not talking about just tolerating or putting up with. How could we not draw them in with the love of Christ? And that was what Jesus was saying about that woman that was washing his, his feet with his tears. You know, Jesus told a story to Simon and said, you know, somebody owed a great debt and someone owed a smaller debt and both were forgiven. Who do you think was more appreciative? And Simon said, the one who was forgiven the greater debt. And Jesus said, absolutely. You know, I came into this house and you have shown no hospitality towards me. You didn't greet me. You didn't kiss me. You haven't served me in any way. But this woman has not ceased to show love and kindness from the moment that she has come in. She has had a tremendous debt forgiven her and she has loved much. And that's the outcome. When we know what we've been forgiven of and what we've been received of, how would we not receive other people? Christ did so for the glory of God. He received us. And we reflect God's glory when we are people that receive other people. And so may we live with that motivation in mind. May we be those who have our eyes set to the glory of God. So what do we do? We stick together, we accept one another, and we love and encourage one another. How are we going to do this? We're going to look to the Scriptures. Sorry, we're going to look to the example of Christ. We're going to learn from the Scriptures. We're going to lean on God's power. Why are we going to do this? For the glory of God. Because God is glorified when we do this one to another. So let's call upon God's name right now for help in this. Father, we praise your holy name. You truly are glorious. Help us, Lord. It is in our nature to divide. It's in our nature to isolate. It's in our nature to serve ourselves. But God, you've given us a, a, an entirely different example in your son. You've given us a command that we're to love and accept and encourage to, to carry one another, as it were. So, Father, would you help us to be a people who truly look to Christ in all that we do? Would you help us to be a people who really are immersed in the Word of God and being changed by it? Help us to be, Lord, a people who are leaning on you in all that we do. Help us, Father, to live for the glory of God, not for the glory of ourselves, that's how the world lives, for our own vainglory. But God, would you radically change our hearts and our minds so that from the moment that we turn that alarm clock off in the morning till the night that we, till the time that we lay back in our beds, God, that we would be living for the glory of your name and all that we enjoy and all the goodness that we receive from you and all of our interactions with other people and with each other in the church. Help us, Father. And it's all for you and it's all for your glory. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.